We are in Romans seven thirteen through 25, the very passage that I have been dreading, I mean anticipating from day one, when we opened up Romans, I knew this study was coming and it is upon us. So let me read verses 13 through 25 just to set what Paul says. Here's what Paul says in Romans seven thirteen to 25. Therefore... Did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, Sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in me. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Reading through that passage, I feel like the expositor here, wretched interpreter that I am, who will deliver me from this passage of death? There are in this amidst of difficulties and challenges to navigate through. And this week, I really just want to set up the discussion. I know within a body of believers, there are some who have formed convictions one way or another, and there are others who are kind of in between saying, what's the big deal? What's going on? And so hopefully this week, I'm just going to set up both the historical framework and the framework of this text, and then next week, start to navigate through it trying to work at breaking this down into bite-sized pieces, even though maybe some of the bites are bigger than you want to take. (laughs) I'm trying to break it down so that it is easier to navigate through. As I said, I was uh, in this text anticipating it for a long time. I'm now the third rag preaching through this section. Both of my uncles have preached through this, and they've landed in different spots. Uh, So I come into this with a little bit of fear and trepidation. Uh, but I recognize one of my uncles are on my side, so I'm happy about that. We get to pick, at the, uh, pick on the other one in the next family uh, Thanksgiving, I guess. But as we come to this text, I, I realize, um, again, you may have a particular view. You may um, 
strongly hold that view, and I may present some details that challenge you in holding that view, and there will be some tensions in your heart as I bring that up. And then there are people in between who are like, uh, why the debate? Why fight through all of this? I mean, it's, you're kind of like feeling like a child watching mom and dad fight. You know, there's no winner here. You feel powerless watching the whole thing take place, and you're wondering, why can't we all just get along here? So I understand that dynamic, and I am going to do my best to try to disarm that dynamic as we work through here, because I do think this is important, what uh, is brought out here. I understand the, the, the concerns on every side, and I can tell you even in my own personal experiences, I have gone around and around on this. And, you know, I jokingly say, you know, wretched interpreter that I am, but I feel that, particularly in this text like this, because there are so many details to be drawn out. And so I understand this. You walk away saying, I feel overwhelmed at all the details. Well, now you're sharing my misery. Like together, we're, we're in misery together. There's a common, you know, ground, and you know how to pray for me throughout the week. So we try to boil this down and, uh, and understand what is going on in this text. So there's no rush. We're not going to blitz through this in a week or two. We're going to work through this in a way that we can understand what's happening. In the midst of it, I, I desire, at least for my own self, I'm going to seek to be, uh, you know, to challenge. I know this text will challenge us. It will force us to think carefully, and we'll seek to do that. I hope to be fair. If you think I'm not fair in any way, let me know, and I will balance out the detail. I want to be fair in the presentation. I want to be careful to pay attention but I also want to communicate with the kind of spirit that shows love and compassion and realizes, I know this is a difficult text, and I know good people land on different spots, so I don't want to present in such a way that doesn't demonstrate that. And so I'm going to be working carefully to do that. I remember at this particular point, I do differ from John Calvin, who preaching through this section called any other view than his view, which was the believer view, yeah, he says, any other view is false teaching or error. So apparently he has condemned me. I can live with that at this point. But I realize, yeah, it's a challenging passage that we will have to navigate through. But we're going to do it with a kind of way that we are trying to uh, understand what the text says. This is hard for me particularly because I think about my own heritage you know, if I think, who are my people? The Reformers are my people. I go back, the Reformation, all that took place in the Protestant Reformation, those are the works I run back to, I rejoice in. I love their devotion to God. I love their theology. Many of the Reformers landed in the other side than where I land in this particular passage. So you wouldn't be surprised then in my shock when I was reading and I found out it's not to my glory that Erasmus, Jacobus Arminius, and John Wesley all hold the same view as I do. Which if you know those names in history, that's not very good for a Calvinist to have those guys on your side. To which somebody asked me between services, what do you think about that? And I just said, well, a broken clock is right twice a day anyway. So even if they were messed up, they got one thing right, you know. So in that sense, you know, I, I recognize that, that uh, you know, it's a, an ad hominem argument to discredit my view because somebody you don't like takes it. Uh, just like it would be the same thing for me to do on your side. It's just simply ad hominem. We're here to deal with the details and unfold what the details say 
uh, from the text. And so I know we're going to be tested and stretched and like, how do we handle the scriptures? How do we come to the Bible and interpret what the Bible says? And what do we value in interpretation? Do we value tradition? Do we value experience? Do we value uh, theological um, ideas? Do we value the textual details? What is it that we value? That's going to be revealed when you come to the text. Now, for the sake of full disclosure, when I was a brand new seminary student, first year seminary, completely green, I went into my first class, hermeneutics, and in the hermeneutics class, and mind you, I was woefully unprepared for that class because I had not none of the language training yet, but that was my first class, and that's what freshmen take. So I went in, took the class on hermeneutics. One of the assignments was a problem passage, and um, you know, I was smart enough to recognize if you're going to take on a problem passage, take on a passage everyone disagrees on because then you could just pick a side and it doesn't matter. You know? So I picked the Romans 7 debate. And I jumped in, and I landed on the mature believer view, that Romans 7 is a description of a mature believer. And here were the reasons why for me at that time. The strong use of the present tense, when verses 1 through 13 is all in the past tense, you come to verse 14 through 25, Paul changes and he moves to the present tense. I am, I am of flesh. From that statement and many statements throughout 14 through 25, it's in the present tense. And thinking, well, right now, if he's talking right now in the present tense, and this is the Apostle Paul, he is referring to himself. That was a strong point for me. The other strong point, of course, is the use of I. You know, 52 times from verse 7 to verse 25, he says, I, I, I. For all this emphatic use of I must be the Apostle Paul. And probably one of the strongest supports for me was the nature of depravity. How can an unbeliever say what the author is saying here? How can an unbeliever desire the truth, long for, desire to do its right? You know, that's probably where I put most of the weight of the argument when I was wrestling through it. And the fourth reason I took that view was kind of the classic, just the collective testimony of other scholars I mean, I had John Squared on my side, John MacArthur and John Calvin. I mean, you can't go wrong when you got those two guys on your side. And so on these four reasons, I was staunchly dug into my, to that particular view and held that for the longest time until recently. So, and we will show you why we drifted. But before I do that, let me lay out some ground rules for us, because I've just been thinking about this for quite a long time, and I know that there are challenges to this, but before we get into the text and what exactly the arguments are, I do need to set some ground rules for us so that we are engaging in this in the similar rules. The first would be this. I'm not going to take ad hominem arguments, I'm not going to value them, and I'm not going to give them. I do not intend to build my case by discrediting other scholars. I'll discredit their work, but not them as individuals. I wouldn't take it against me either. So if you say, well, he is on Erasmus' side or Jacobus Arminius' side, so what? I hope to be on the side of Scripture. 
But the argument, an ad hominem argument is not going to help. Either one of us. It doesn't solve anyone's tension. You haven't convinced me because you've attacked my character to move away from a position. And I'm not going to convince you that same way. Ad hominem arguments will not help us understand what the text means. I know it's a difficult text. The reason why it's a difficult text means that we've got to labor at understanding the details there. And when we get cornered, and I know what happens, when we kind of get cornered, when we kind of get stuck, and someone brings up a really good argument, and it's really hard for us to address, the flesh just launches out, and I have to just discredit you. Now, who are you? you know, and we discredit the person. That won't be helpful. The other thing that we won't do, or just setting a groundwork, is this. And here's what you need to think about carefully, especially as you're analyzing a text, is this. And we all must affirm this. That personal experience is not the grid through which we interpret the Scripture. And you need to understand as a fundamental principle, your experience is not the grid to the meaning of God's Word. Neither your experience or mine. You can look at this text and you can say, this feels like a believer. This experience this is the experience I had reading through this text. So that experience then must be right. It must be that because it relates to me and it relates to my experience, that must be the meaning of this text. And I can tell you, it doesn't matter what view you take. One particular commentator that I had read said there are like 25 different views on this. 25 different views that fall into two categories, but 25 views. I guarantee you every one of those people say there's an experience there that relates to them. Experience for all of that. Think about it like this. If you took the believer view, here's what you could say. This points to my experience. Notice verse 14. For we know the law is spiritual. That's something all believers know. And verse 15. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. I, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Verse 15. Verse 16. I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. Verse 21, the one who wishes to do good. Verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Verse 25, but thanks be to God through the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it can be argued from the believer's view and believer's perspective. Only a believer could argue that the law is spiritual. And only a believer knows the war against indwelling sin. And only a believer does not desire to sin. And only a believer can wish to do good. And only a believer can joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And only a believer will call out to Jesus and recognize him as Lord. And only a believer can, see, uh, can seem to be in, as informed as the writer is here. So experientially, it must be a believer, right? But look... From the other vantage point, if he's an unbeliever, what would an unbeliever view point at? Well, verse 14 again. I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. In verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. Verse 19, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. In verse 23, is making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And with my flesh, verse 25, I serve the law of sin. 
You see, only an unbeliever is, to- is in total slavery to sin. Only an unbeliever can say, nothing good dwells in me. Only an unbeliever is controlled and dominated by the master of sin. Only an unbeliever is a prisoner to sin. Only an unbeliever is calling out for help for someone to deliver him. Both sides have experience. It doesn't matter which side you take. If you took the mature believer view, if you took the messed up Christian view... I made that one up, but there is an immature believer view. You, if you took the spiritual awakened but not yet regenerated person, if you took the, uh, un, or the informed believer, unbeliever view, if you took the natural Jew under the law view, no matter what view you took, it is still, you can have an experience from this text. So experience isn't the guide. It's not going to help us. You're not going to sway me by your experience, and I'm not going to sway you by my experience, because we both can see our experience in this text of Scripture. Thirdly, just as a ground rule for us when we're coming to the text, it's not right for us, and this is a nuance off of experience, it's not right for us to say how a text was used in my life becomes the principle for how we interpret the text. I mean, listen, a lot of Bible passages have been misused and God still converted people. God's still changing them. So even if a passage was misused, doesn't make it right. We are not arguing, again, for a kind of hermeneutic that is historical, grammatical, experiential, as if by experience is a means to interpret that a text. Is it how I applied it and it changed my life, therefore it has meaning. Because I, again, since I've even been teaching and sharing, people have come up from both sides and talked about how their side really changed their life and their perspective. And I chuckled to myself because I have recognized that. The Lord has used principles of Scripture or ideas to shape people. So that experience of application is not authoritative. And then fourthly, just as a ground rule before we get in as a principle. Nor can anyone say, because their heroes landed in a particular spot, and some young preacher comes today, and I'm being overly generous to myself, calling myself young, but in light of Calvin, I am much younger. Nor can a young preacher come today, take a different view, who must then be proud because he took a different view. Well, again, that's an ad hominem argument. Just because I differ doesn't mean I'm proud. And I assure you that your hero would not accuse me of being proud because your hero would recognize that he is aware that he probably got something wrong. I'm just here to tell him it's in this passage, right? So, no, the idea in this is that we can have differences among God's people and doesn't make one proud for being in that spot. It's interesting. I've heard many argue from church history and say of church history, well, you just moved away from the church historically. And I'd have to ask at that point, well, at what point in church history? You recognize that certainly from the Reformation on, you're right. I have gone against the Reformers, uh, where the Reformers have gone. But do you recognize that the first 300 years of the church that they interpreted the text the way I do. 
that the first 300 years, the, known, the years known as the Greek fathers, those who knew Greek, the early church fathers who knew Greek, took my position. Chrysostom himself, a church father, writes that this is Paul reflecting on himself as he was under the law as a Jew. In fact, you can even begin to go show that even Greek philosophers at the time used this kind of language of, of inability and not able to, to um, do what they wished to do. It was common in Greek language. So all that to say is you could pick a point in history and you can prove your case, but I'll just pick a different reference point. Which one of us would be right in, in the midst of this? So this, all that to say is this. There's no reason to be hostile. No reason for us. We can engage in the dialogue and work through the details and draw out and learn from this. And, as I told the first hour, if you take a differing view from me, the elders do not let me kick you out. Right? I mean, I asked them, can I just kick them out? Can I move on? They said, no, you can't do that. So you get to stay, even with a different view, and uh, they're going to let me stay. You know, it's great. We get to work together. But if we take a different view, know this. If you take a different view than me as I am unfolding this for you, you have Bible scholars on your side. You have faithful pastors on your your side. You have many good, faithful men and women on your side who support that same view. And you're all equally wrong together. All right? So we're... Again, I could say that common in jest because I know they would say the same thing for me. I know that they would come back and, and, and say the exact same thing. And we would, you know, if we had a, you know, I bring up some of my faithful mentors and friends who take the other side. I mean, Phil Johnson takes the other side. He sat on my ordination. He disagrees with me. Well, I disagree with him. You know, there's, we can sit here. We could have a debate. We both would say the exact same thing in regards to defending this. So that's the groundwork. Let's say, what are we arguing about? What is the issue? Well, here's the issue. Again, and I'm going to take the big, broad categories to which all the other ones, there's two categories. You either believe that Paul is referencing himself as a believer here, and this is the present struggle of a believer. Or this is an unbeliever who is living under the law and informed by the law. So let me show you how each one argues from a high level, and then we will boil down in the weeks to come. But what is the believer arguing for? The believer view of this passage is this. The one who takes it as a believer is arguing that this expression in Romans seven fourteen through 25 is the expression of a periodic, occasional, rather than constant defeat. That this is Paul's emphasis is on the sensitivity to sin which the mature believer feels whenever he does sin. A sensitivity which increases as one is being conformed to the image of Christ. Now Romans seven fourteen through 25 is not about the constant slavery of a believer to sin like every moment he is in total slavery. Actually it is whenever he does sin, he feels this way. He feels incapable. He feels like a prisoner. He feels like he is uh, sold into bondage. But it's not that he is that. It's that what he feels when he is falling short. So the 
the believer view emphasizes here that this is not about being totally defeated by sin. This is about what one feels whenever sin is actually revealed. <clears throat> and again, I would say this. I, I agree with the theology that the author is stating or that view is stating. I mean, the believer view is not teaching that Paul is in total defeat. They're not teaching that he is completely incapable. I mean, after all, the text says he wishes to do good. He desires what is good. He is even serving, verse 25, with the law of his mind, or with his mind, he's serving the law. I mean, John Murray emphasizes that this desire must mean if he has the desire, he actually practiced Murray makes the case that here, because the, the author is reflecting desire, it also means that he was doing, he was actually performing the things, very things he desired. So this is a description, the Believer Review says, this is the description of the believer whenever he does sin. It's not a description of his everyday life or every moment experience, but rather a description of a struggle whenever sin is present. So a mature believer then wars against sin and wars against the struggle of sin within himself. He desires to do good. He desires to be free from sin, but he finds within himself sin that keeps coming up. I mean, after all, only a Christian could argue, verse 15, he wants to obey. The eye of Romans 7 wants to obey. Verse 16, only the believer is arguing, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. Or verse 17, the, only a believer is saying, again, it's not I doing it, but sin dwelling in me. I am desiring something else, but sin is doing this. He acknowledges his depravity in verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. He knows his condition. I want to do good, verse 19. I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, verse 22. I feel imprisoned and in bondage to sin, verse 23. I recognize wretchedness, verse 24. Again, the idea is a believer has that kind of awareness of their own condition, their own fallenness and inability so that this then believer view is this is the experience of every mature Christian who is growing in holiness and still dissatisfied with the weakness and the failure that comes up in their Christian life. You say, well, pastor, that sounds like me. Well, what also sounds like you? Let me show you the other side of the you. The you before Christ. The unbeliever side. Hopefully I presented that view with, I mean, that's high level. I haven't presented every detail and we'll unpack that in the weeks to come. But hopefully I presented it with fairness. And one would say, yes, that's exactly what I would be emphasizing. The other side, the unbelieving side, teaches this. You take the unbeliever view, what you're taking is this, that this is how godlike a person can be while still being an unbeliever. You see, man was created in the image of God. 
Genesis 1 tells us that. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, Let us make man in our image. Man was created to be a moral being. He was created to reflect God and reflect his character and attributes. And that man has, as we saw in Romans 2, the law written in our heart. Man knows in his heart. He has a a conscience that informs him of the truth. And he even does naturally right, instinctively right. Being born and created in God's image and having the law written on our hearts, we are capable of reflecting God. So that what you see in then Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25 is the life of the natural man without the Spirit of God. What does it look like? And there's no mention of the Spirit in verses 14 through 25. No mention of the Holy Spirit moving you along, teaching you, as chapter 8 is going to be the other side. You have, by the power of the Spirit, we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Chapter 8 is the Spirit moving and strengthening us. Here in chapter 7, it's just the natural man. The natural man, his own inabilities. The natural man who is under the law. That we see and we'll continue to see all of chapter 7 is about the law and the work of the law. And in this case, this is the work of the law and its inability to change the natural man. Robert Raymond says it like this in his Systematic Theology. He says, in my opinion, this passage is not a description of the regenerate person's struggle against indwelling sin. Rather, Drawing upon his own experience as Saul, the most zealous law-keeping Pharisee of his day, who had become aware through the law, as applied by the Spirit of his own innate sinfulness, in this passage, Paul, with words provided him from this enlightened vantage point, which is now his as a Christian, sets forth both the impotence and the unregenerate eye to do good against the power of indwelling sin. So he's saying, this is Paul as a believer reflecting back to Paul when he was an unbeliever as an unbelieving Pharisee. And he's writing as, a Pharisee, uh, as this believer reflecting on that state as a Pharisee where he was not capable of doing the law. He was under the law and he found within himself weakness, inability, to do good because of the depravity of his sin nature. As uh, one pastor stated, Paul is speaking here from an enlightened perspective, whereas a believer, he's now looking back on his experience as an unregenerate Pharisee who loved God's law, desired to obey it, but was incapable of doing so. Because he had not been regenerated by the Spirit and because he had not been indwelt and empowered by the Spirit. Only an unbeliever could say these things. Only an unbeliever can say, I am regularly, consistently sold into bondage to sin, verse 14. Only an unbeliever is going to state that he is under under sin, under slavery. Not a believer, Only an unbeliever is affirming that he is a prisoner, that he is stuck. I mean, think about this just contextually. The contrast of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. Just listen to these passages. The contrast between the believer in Romans chapter 6 
and then who I would describe the unbeliever in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 6 and verse 2 says this, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Romans chapter 7 verse 25, I am serving with my flesh the law of sin. Well, what is it? Am I set free from the slavery or am I serving it? Romans chapter 6, 6, that our body of sin might be done away with. Chapter 7, verse 24, who will set me free from this body of death? What is it? You just set free in chapter 6 and now you're back into it and don't know who's going to deliver you in chapter 7? Chapter 6, 6, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Chapter 7, verse 14, I am sold under sin. Chapter 6 and verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. Chapter 7, verse 14, I am sold under sin. Chapter 6, verse 17, though you were slaves of sin. Chapter 7, verse 25, I am serving with my flesh the law of sin. Again, it just keeps going back and forth between the believer set free in chapter 6, a slave. In fact, 6.18, you became slaves of righteousness. 7.23, making me a prisoner of sin or making me a prisoner of unrighteousness. Well, what is it, Paul? Am I set free and I have freedom in chapter 6, but then I'm not in 7? What's going on? I mean, the context is stark between the two chapters. In fact, between the three chapters, the stark contrast between a believer who is free, a believer who by grace is now alive in Christ and a slave of righteousness, a believer, chapter 8, who is filled with the Spirit, and then whatever is happening here in chapter 7, the unbeliever, informed by the law but completely incapable to keep the law. Now again, you can see what I was saying, wretched interpreter that I am. And I have to go through this particular text. So summarize the argument real quick. Here's the summary of the argument. Either this passage is teaching how much a Christian struggles with indwelling sin while still being a Christian, or... It's how close an unbeliever can be to God and still be an unbeliever. That's what's at stake in the midst of wrestling through this passage. I believe that this passage is teaching the complete inability of the natural man to keep the law. We cannot keep the law in our own strength. We need the grace of God found in the gospel of God to make us alive to Christ and dead to sin. And we need the Spirit of God, otherwise we're hopeless. And again, if that message makes me a heretic, I'm ready to be burned for that. We need God for the ability to be righteous, to be conformed into the image of his Son. We need his grace found in Christ Jesus to make us alive We need his spirit to lead us and direct us so that we would be able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because the law cannot produce in us naturally. The law can only provoke us, expose us, reveal how we fall short. The law is only there to uphold the righteous standard, but the law cannot create a power within us to do it. 
can only expose. And I think that's the exact struggle you're seeing in verses 14 through 25. The natural man's inability to keep the law, even though he recognizes the law as holy, just, and good. But we'll unpack that in the weeks to come. I really just thought today to set the framework so you understand the views, so you don't walk out of here like, can't we all just get along? Well, this is like, uh, well... It's impossible for these two uh, parties to be on the exact same page because they're radically different. But with it, I think there's some clear details that as we go wrestling through the scriptures, we're going to be able to find an answer to what Paul is unfolding in this section, which I believe will comfort our hearts and encourage us and give us insight. And I hope to answer every one of the objections. So I will leave. I will cover every advantage, strength of both sides, so that you will have a clear picture and seek to give an answer. And then in the weeks to come, we've decided as elders to take one of the uh, Sunday night services and open it up to Q and A, so you can stump the pastor live at that point and uh, force me at that hand to to uh, answer whatever burden would be on your heart in regards to this question what's happening here. And in the end, I think the Lord is going to use this to encourage our hearts. And next week, we'll start to jump into the details. This was just a warm-up. You think if you're overwhelmed here, well, get ready for next week. We'll start to uh, add the case or build the case here, what Paul is stating. And I can't tell you, I didn't, on either side, I didn't give their textual details. I'll give them as we handle the text and work our way through. I'll give you what each side is saying textually so we can defend it. Well, it's now time to prepare our hearts for the taking of the Lord's Supper together. Ask the men to come and prepare to pass the elements. What's great about this time of taking of the Lord's table is that the, in the Lord's table, it's a reminder of the gospel. It's the reminder of what we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, why we depend upon him, and I thought a, a great text for us to look at was in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, John describes an event in Jesus' earthly ministry. After he had the feeding of the 5,000, that night he sent his disciples across. He went out and prayed because they wanted to make him king and he was not ready. And that was not the will of the Father. In the middle of the night, he comes back, he comes across the lake, and the disciples see him walking on the water, and uh, they cry out to him, and he reveals himself to them. The next morning, the crowd comes searching for him, and they find him on the other, sea of the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they start to ask him, where did you go, and how did you get here, and, and hey, can you do that miracle again? You know, and Jesus confronts them you know, in regards to why they were pursuing him. You know, you weren't pursuing me for right reasons. You wanted another miracle. You wanted to be fed again. And it started an inner, a dialogue between the groups. And Jesus confronts them and reminds them, I am the bread of life. Now, it's that principle we're going to start with and we'll pick up in a moment. But it's that idea that we want to set in our mind as the bread is passed. We're setting our mind as what is our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is he to us? What are we to him? How do we view Christ in this union between his believers and him? What is that? 